Exodus chapter 2, verse number 1. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister, that is, the child's sister, to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, and she said, Because I drew him out of the water. We ask Heavenly Father your blessing on these few thoughts this morning. We pray that we might recognize ways in which we might share the gospel with others and see how the gospel is received by others. We ask Heavenly Father for your leadership throughout this message. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I would like to look at Moses in the same way that we looked at Daniel last week. We can find ancestors of New Testament soul winners in the first half of the Word of God. As I said last week, they are not precise duplicates. They are not images of today's evangelists. But they do have characteristics and traits which can help us in our service and our ministry for the glory of the Lord. Now you may be wondering, if Moses is our soul winner, then who is he trying to win to the Lord? To answer that, I go back to this morning's lesson in Sunday school and lessons over the last couple of weeks, and I remind you that every needy soul is exactly the same with differences. The same with differences. That means we can't talk to a Roman Catholic in the same way that we would talk to a Muslim. We can't talk to our grandchildren in the same way that we talk to a stranger. When we come to Moses, I would like you to picture him as witnessing to two very different people. Unlike our last message, this time let's start with the evangelist. Have you ever thought about Moses as a soul winner? I never did until I started thinking about it this week. 
He's better known to us as the lawgiver. We sometimes speak about the law of Moses, which isn't really true, but we give him credit for that. Sometimes he is described as Israel's deliverer. He is the one who brought them out of Egypt. He is a type of Christ. He was, in a sense, their savior. In this, we come to our first lesson in application. Over the years, I have known some professional evangelists. And I've read of many others throughout my, my years. Most of them went from church to church, preaching the gospel as if the pastor and the members of that church never did it themselves. They ministered to those churches upon invitation. Rarely did they personally do any evangelism, personal evangelism in the church. Now these evangelists got up behind the pulpit and they said, you're supposed to do it, you're supposed to do it, and here is how it's supposed to be done. And those people came to their churches uh, expecting to leave with an offering, an honorarium. Sometimes they came demanding ahead of time, you will pay me this much to come and minister to you. Of course, none of this do we find in the word of God. This is uh, not biblical practice. Even though we do find people who are called evangelists, that was still different. Yes, there were people whose lives were totally dedicated to sharing Christ with others. I think we can say of Philip, that was his goal in life. Everything else was was secondary. He was an evangelist. But then, beside Philip and others like him, there were thousands of ordinary people. People like Aquila and Priscilla. Tent makers and housewives who took opportunity to share what they knew of Christ with others. Upon Saul's persecution of the Jerusalem church, most of the members in Jerusalem were scattered abroad. The apostles stayed. They continued to minister there, but many of the members of the church went in various directions. And virtually every one of them became an evangelist or a soul winner, sharing the word of God. This is not my opinion. This is what Acts 8, 4 tells us. In Moses' case, no one is going to accuse him of being an evangelist. No one is ever going to describe him, except some fools every once in a while, as a personal soul winner. That was not the way he was known. And the same should be true of every saint of God. You may not be known as an evangelist, but you should be an evangelist. We all should be soul winners. Consider Moses' early life. Despite being a part of God's chosen generation, royal priesthood, and peculiar people, his home life was uh, a little different. Can you imagine, uh, as an infant or a toddler, being taken into the palace of, of Pharaoh? 
He wasn't there very long. He came back out and went back home to his family. But uh, uh, as he grew up from just a, a, an infant in arms, he recognized himself to be different from everybody else. And then at a certain point in time, we're not told exactly when, he was taken from his mother into that palace once again, and there he is isolated from his people. He is no longer a Hebrew, but he knew that he was. His mother had instilled that into him when he was two and three years old. He knew that. And now he's away. He doesn't get to see his mother. Maybe once in a while, I don't know. Did uh, uh, his brother and sister ever come to visit him when he was in Pharaoh's house? He probably felt rejected. Did his father have anything to do with the raising of this uh, infant child, Moses? He probably felt isolated. He may have been a little angry with God. Lord, you have forsaken me. Why am I being cast aside and forced to live with these people that I don't particularly like? He may have, as many people do, chosen to rebel against God because of this mistreatment that he perceives himself to have received. But he didn't. His education was the highest caliber. He went to uh, Hebrew school for a little while, and then he went to uh, a preparatory high school, and then on to EU, Egypt University. In those schools, the last schools, he was taught to look at life through Christless spectacles. He was taught to look at life in a way that was contrary to what his mother and father at some point, very early in his life, had been teaching him. He was faced with the dual contradictory education that children today face. He goes to church, he hears one thing. He goes to school, he hears another. He's at home, he hears one thing. He's with his friends, he hears another. You might say he was taught a rudimentary aspect of evolutionary theory. He was certainly taught the survival of the fittest, and he's close to the fittest, being uh, a a son of Pharaoh. He he was taught things that... uh, are taught to professing Christians today. They become confused. Moses, I don't think, was really confused by it. He knew who he was, an Israelite. He knew that he was a son of Levi, a grandson of Jacob, a grandson of Abraham. And with that knowledge, added to the privileged position that he had as a son of Pharaoh... He took it upon himself to serve God. But it was just like so many professing Christians, it was done in the flesh. It was all about 
Here's how I think it should be done. He even killed an unjust Egyptian thinking that he was doing God a favor in this. But it backfired. Our fleshly service for the Lord will produce nothing but problems. And Moses was forced to flee from Egypt for his life. When the court found out what he had done, uh, he earned disfavor with his uh, stepfather, Pharaoh, and Moses fled for his life out into the desert. For the next 40 years, this child of God, this servant of God, floundered around doing almost nothing for God. And then one day, he was brought into the throne room of Jehovah, just like Isaiah. And there the Lord spoke to Moses. At the burning bush, God basically said, Whom shall I send into Egypt and who will go for me? Moses replied, Don't look at me, Lord. I'm a waste of time. I'm no good. I'm a failure. I'm a nobody. I'm not any good for you. And as we've said a couple of times in regard to these lessons, both in Sunday school and elsewhere, this is the kind of person the Lord loves to use. That one who is really willing to admit, I am a nobody. I cannot be much profit to the Lord. Not the wise men. Not the mighty, as we've already heard this morning. Not the noble. But the God-chosen foolish souls the Lord loves to use to confound the mighty. Even in the palace. It's a good thing to be humble before the Lord. But it's something else to use humility in order to rebel. Moses was trying that. I don't think the Lord is pleased with our arguments against speaking out on his behalf. Oh, I stutter. Oh, I'm not very smart. I'm not good on my feet. Lord, uh, find somebody else. The Lord is not pleased with our arguments. Moses, I know better than you do how weak and sinful you are. And just to demonstrate, Moses, put your hand into your cloak. And he did. And it came out as white as snow, covered in leprosy. God says, I know exactly how sinful you are. You have no idea how wretched and weak and sinful you are. Like the rest of us, Moses was just a sinner saved by grace. But God called on this sinner to act on his behalf, to bring him glory. This is us. One of the lessons we take from this Old Testament mirror includes the fact that Moses' brethren didn't understand or appreciate him. Israel was in a state of disrepair, despair, enslaved in a land of utter worldliness. God's people were not evangelical for a number of reasons, even though they had been chosen by God for that specific purpose. They're not 
doing what they're supposed to do. And when Moses was set on fire by God at the burning bush, figuratively, when Moses begins to serve the Lord, his own people, Israel, feared him and shunned him. They had been going to church all their lives. They had been doing what was expected of them in a religious sense. But their hearts were empty. They were going about the worship of the Lord in some robotic fashion. They weren't really engaged. Revival may begin with one person. In fact, it almost always begins with one person. But it will never be a revival if it's kept confined to that one person. Moses is on fire for Jehovah. Oh, big deal. He'll burn himself out one of these days. Don't worry about it. It took the persistence of Moses and the miraculous power of God to convince Israel uh, of God's upcoming blessings. Hang in there. Moses' gospel ministry began with a message of condemnation. And basically it remained that kind of message throughout his, his ministry. As Paul said, the law is holy and, the, and just and good. And through it, like a, a school teacher, sinners are taught that they need a savior. They're taught to recognize what failures they are. They can't add, they can't subtract, they can't multiply, they don't know uh, 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 grammar. You're failures. You need a savior. But in addition to the law, Moses knew something very special about the Lord. Mm -hmm. The scripture that Brother Kilgard read a few minutes ago. And Moses said unto God, when I, when I go into Egypt and I, I confront the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, the God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, what is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent thee, sent thee, me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations. So the Lord graciously gave to Moses a glimpse of the Savior. And he was to take the Savior to these people to whom he's evangelizing. With a pause. Did you notice that? I've heard preachers go overboard emphasizing that the Lord Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am, I am, I am. I have heard pastors tell their congregations that in these things, Jesus was saying, I am Jehovah. I have a hard time repeating that kind of instruction. 
But John 8 is a statement above and beyond. When Jesus was arguing with uh, uh, the Jews about his relationship with Abraham, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. John 8, 58. At that point, those Jews who heard Jesus speak reached down and started picking up the largest stones that they could find with the intention of killing this man for his blasphemy. They recognized that statement as a declaration, I am that I am. I am Jehovah. And that I am is the person Moses was to share with Israel and Pharaoh if they could get that far, if he could get that far. Moses preached the law as modern evangelists should do, but he also knew a little bit about the Lord Jesus. A true presentation of the gospel includes a message of sins, condemnation, as well as God's salvation through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it might be argued that Moses' ministry was primarily directed toward the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. What might we learn about our ministry by considering the evangelistic contact between Moses and Pharaoh? First, we notice that they were indirectly related to one another. They were raised in different wings of the royal palace, so to speak. Moses' foster mother was either the daughter of this pharaoh or his sister, one or the other. doesn't matter. And when we present the gospel to another person, we need to remember that we are speaking with a distant relative. We all share the same blood. However, different blood types. Doesn't matter. In our original state, our sin, yours and mine, was no less offensive to God than that of uh, uh, a child molester, or a drug dealer, or a murderer. The unsaved son of a Baptist preacher is no less a rebel than... Uh, an evolutionary atheist right. or atheistic evolutionist or something. They both need to be saved. Yes. Except ye be born again, ye shall all likewise perish. Pharaoh was not an unreligious man. And Moses happened to know about his religious background. As commonly put these days, Pharaoh was a spiritual person. What does that mean? At various points in Egyptian history, the king would have honored the god Ra because he was considered to be an incarnation of the god Ra. And there was the sun god, and there was the cow goddess, and there was the cat goddess. There was Isis, who is often depicted as holding the child Horus, 
which often looks like the Madonna holding a baby. Uh, and there was her husband, Osiris. And these are just the tip of the iceberg in the religion of the Egyptians. There was some reverence for the Nile River and crocodiles and frogs and beetles and so on and so on. Like all men everywhere, Pharaoh was religious. He had his false gods. He had his form of worship. And like most sinners, Pharaoh's religion set him on a pedestal. You may save yourself with your good works. Or in this particular case, he was God. He was the incarnation of Ra. Satan came to the mother of us all and asked, Don't you want to be like God? Eat of this fruit and become gods yourselves. It's a part of our wicked religion. It's a part of all of us to some degree. Pharaoh's religion distinctly put him in that spot of human deification. Moses was aware of that. In Exodus 7, Moses went into the presence of Pharaoh carrying the message of Jehovah. Obviously, it was not in a church context. Moses is not preaching to a congregation of 250 people. It was a form of personal work. It was personal evangelism. If it could have gotten to the point, here's Jesus. Essentially, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Submit yourself to the Lord God. But Pharaoh refused. So Moses' uh, co-evangelist, uh, Aaron, threw down their, their illustration of authority, the staff of Moses and Aaron, threw down that staff and it became a serpent. Everybody jumped back. Oh, until Pharaoh's religionists got involved and they threw down staffs as well, as well and they too became serpents. So there was a standoff there for a little while until Aaron's serpent ate the other serpents. Pharaoh should have said, ooh. He didn't. He said, I'm not interested in that. He rejected the truth. Then began an epic war between Jehovah and the gods of the Egyptians. The war which we call the Ten Plagues. After each battle, Moses returned to Pharaoh with the exhortation, Repent! There's little use to talk to a lost person about the Savior until there is humble repentance. This is one of the sad features of modern evangelism. The presentation of Christ to people who aren't ready to admit that they need a savior. What point is a savior if you don't need one? Plague after plague successively crushed Egypt into the sand, forcing Pharaoh's head to turn toward Jehovah. But it was temporary. But then, finally, by Exodus 10, Pharaoh was willing to admit, I have sinned against your God. I have sinned against you. 
But those, again, were just words. They were temporary. And immediately his heart was hardened again. He might have said, just like another king centuries later, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. Eventually, the work of God involved the Lord's death angel. Exodus 12, 29, we read, And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great, a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get forth out from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as ye have said. Take also your flocks and your herds as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So with the blessing, or in this case the curse of the Passover, Israel left Egypt. Headed toward the Red Sea. You might say that momentarily uh, Pharaoh got religion. Be gone. And, and bless me. Mm. Nothing about repentance. Nothing about right. needing a savior. Make me feel good. Two chapters later, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. Shortly after that, Pharaoh and his army died at the hand of God in the midst of the Red Sea. The lesson is, despite reciting the proper words, no sinner is going to truly repent and trust God's message of grace until he is regenerated, until yep. he has a new heart. Therefore, you must be born again. Pharaoh was not converted under the ministry of Moses. It was a, a failure? Not really. There was someone born again, however. Moses also had a ministry within his own nation of Israel. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, Israel was no more a people of God than the Egyptians were. Oh yeah, they bore the right name. They had the right heritage. They were going to the Christian churches scattered around town. They were children of the God, children of Jacob, whose name is Israel. They were children of the, the father of the faithful, Abraham. They knew and they practiced some of the traditions their forefathers shared with them about the Lord. They were not exactly idolaters. They were not following the Egyptians into their dens of religious iniquity. But with some exceptions, they weren't properly worshiping the one true and living God. And they knew nothing about the I am. Lord, who shall I say is, has sent me? Tell them I am hath sent thee. They didn't understand that. If I can depict them this way, they were connected to Christendom by name, but without 
Christ. They were still enslaved by the world. The people of Israel were enslaved in Satan's world. They were consumed with making a living and trying to stay alive. And if there was an hour in the day they weren't working, they were spending it with their family, but not in the worship of the Lord. Carnal society had put a ring in their nose and was pulling them around like some sort of cattle. They were building palaces and tombs to be left in this world, laying up no treasure in heaven. When Moses came on the scene, having been directed to do so by God, they didn't appreciate him. Moses wasn't eloquent. He confessed to having a slow tongue. His sermons weren't impressive. He's approaching 80 years old. He's worn out. Just, uh, well, never mind. Uh, things, are, things are coming to an end here. He, his, his life is nearly over. Nevertheless, he and Aaron initially gathered the elders of Israel together. And those people rejoiced in the fact that, you know, there, there may be a break here. We're going to start to feel good. We're, we're, we're in one of those happy churches now. We have good things to look forward to. And they bowed their heads and worshipped. They were not averse to reigniting their old family religion. So long as it didn't become too radical. When Pharaoh rejected Moses' request for religious liberty, at that point, Israel turned against their savior, Moses. They said, ye have made our savior to be abhorred. You, you make us stink in the eyes of Pharaoh to put a sword in their hand to slay us. You said that we would be enjoying serving God, but you didn't tell us how difficult it would be. We're not willing to make the sacrifices you are asking us to make. During some of the early plagues, Israel suffered as much as the Egyptians did. And many in Israel were as stubborn, as rebellious as their oppressors. They were ashamed of the evangelical ministry of Moses. They wanted him to shut up. Go find a different church. Don't be... Shaming us here. They saw and they tasted and they smelled the, the bloody uh, Nile River. The frogs were in their cupboards just as they were in that of the Egyptians. Flies and lice were everywhere. But then, when the three days of tangible, palpable darkness came on the land, there was light in the homes of the Israelites. I look at the ten plagues, and I see Pharaoh becoming harder and harder and harder. More stubborn, more rebellious. He was moving farther and farther from repentance before God, and from acknowledging his, uh, his false religion and his wickedness. But Israel, on the other hand with each successive plague, was becoming a little more pliable, a little softer, a little more willing to listen overall. 
The witness of Moses was being carried with the blessing of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Hearts which at first were as stubborn as Pharaoh's and becoming a little more willing to listen to the message. The soul winner must not give up. We have no idea how long it will be before the Lord will bless with the conversion of that soul. Eventually, the day came when God told his servant that it was time to, uh, in the language of the professional evangelist, close the deal. To present the Savior. So Israel was told that, just like Egypt, they stood on the brink of death and hell. There was no difference between the idolaters and the religious, empty, professing Christians. They were told that soon God's death angel, the angel of judgment, would sweep over the land and there would be death in every home, every stable, every sheepfold, probably in every chicken coop. The people who believed Moses' gospel of death, destruction, and grace and salvation also took the blood of Christ's representative, the Passover lamb, and painted it over their hearts. With the application of that blood, people were redeemed. You could say that night, souls were saved. Israel was saved. Israel had to endure the same preparatory work that Nebuchadnezzar, had to endure from our last lesson. Before he would admit that Jehovah is God, he had to be brought pretty low. Israel had to be brought pretty low. The sufferings of the first of God's plagues made Israel forget the sufferings that they were enduring at the hands of their oppressors to recognize, you know, there's worse stuff. There's the hand of God. When the good news of salvation was made plain, Israel as a nation jumped at the offer of redemption. When they were made to see there were wretched sinners, there was salvation available. The Egyptians never saw it. There was no salvation available. The ministry of God's soul winner, in this case, was blessed with souls. Again, just as we did last week, I ask you, what will it take? How low must you be driven before you will recognize that you are a sinner? You need to be born again. How much will you have to suffer before you will listen to the words of God's evangelist? Will the death angel have to come to your house? Before you recognize there's judgment for sin? Will you have to smell the fire and the brimstone before you look into the face of the good shepherd? What will it take, Mr. Pharaoh, to bring you to your knees before the Lord? Moses' message, just like John the Baptist and Jesus, was repent. Repent. Moses' illustration, 
just like Paul's message was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What will it take? Will you this morning humble yourself before the Lord, put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Please stand. Heavenly Father, in the testimony that we heard a few minutes ago, we were reminded that uh, religious people might go through the motions, even the emotions of their religions without peace with God. It's not until we understand how worthless and wretched we are that we will... uh, turn to the Redeemer. We pray that you'd convict us of our sins and set before us the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us faith to trust. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to number 146. The hymn with which we close pretty frequently. There's a judgment day coming. Are you ready for it? There's a great day coming, 146. There's a great day coming, a great day coming. There's a great day coming by and by. When the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left, are you ready for that day to Mrs. Please ask the Lord's blessing on our fellowship this afternoon. First, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good word of God today. And Father, it is true how these two messages, the Sunday school and the main preaching service, how they do dovetail. And Father, we thank you for that. Uh, 
Father, we thank that all through the Word of God, Genesis to Revelation, it is the same message about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the focus over and over again, and rightfully so. And Father, help us as God's people to realize our need to be ready constantly and an instant to tell of the grace of God. Mm -hmm. Father, there's always opportunities. The field is white to harvest. But Father, doubtless there are people here this morning either in this room or off at a distance, listening, that are lost and undone before a holy and righteous God. Father, help everyone to realize that it is only in Christ that there is salvation. Yes. Lay down those arms of Rodea and I pray, Father. Help them to see, to be in Christ, such a joy. Bless the food now in the fellowship. We thank Thee for those folks who worked hard for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You are dismissed. That was embarrassing, chit-chatting away. <laughs> the service is starting.